I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. In the next hour, it's a band whose founding members met in a tree, a poet who was once a personal shopper for Winona Ryder, and a filmmaker who somehow managed to get David Sedaris's approval on making a movie out of one of his essays. Here's how that turned out. I'm having this stinking piece of whether you want to be the daddy or not. I said, I'm done around with old white face, too busy chasing bush to get off his fat get himself a job. You crawled out of your mammoth's old tattered and grabbed hold of those milk-stained and ain't looked back once. So if you don't want this baby, I'll find another You won't look at the world through the slit of a shipless worm-sized Are you listening to me? We are, because it's it's From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with poet Gary Seitzinger, writer-director Kyle Patrick Alvarez, and music from Josh and Mayer on this edition of Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. You also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. And as always, music from our house band led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. My name uh, is Luke Burbank. Right over there we have from the long winters, Mr. John Roderick. Hello. Thank you. John, we have, a, uh, we have a humdinger of a show today. We have great music from Josh and Mayer. We've got some poetry from Carrie Seitzinger, which rumor has it might devolve into a simile off. Which a I simile would, off, like or as. I would be lying if I said I didn't have to do a quick check of the internet this week to make sure I remembered what a simile was. Some of it's a little bit unclear to me still. Yeah, but you, you were like a hat who mistook his wife for a man. Right, exactly. It was sort of like that. Uh, we also have a filmmaker who got David Sedaris to okay the adaptation of one of David Sedaris's pieces for the big screen, which is incredibly hard to do. He's actually never agreed to it before. And this guy did it by way of moxie, which we are going to hear about. 
you are a person whose entire career is built essentially on chicken wire and moxie. Yeah. Uh, as a musician and as a, as a member of the Hollywood elite, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm well-versed in the use of many different brands of moxie. Don't you think moxie, though, is one of those things that works better in a Mickey Rooney movie than real life. Like in a Mickey Rooney movie, he runs up to the corporate board and says, I may not know a lot about running this oil company, but I got heart. And they give him the job. But in real life, it's like, sir, you can't do this surgery. Yeah. Like, sir, sir, you, how did you get in here? You've been yeah. discredited by all of the major scientifically peer-reviewed publications, and you need to leave the operating theater right now. But Luke, this is the thing about show business. It is not a business, let's be honest. It's a bunch of crazy people. Uh, who are making tons and tons of money in a way that they don't understand. Uh, and moxie really is the only thing any of them have. Uh, so moxie is like, it is the, it's the gas, it's the, it's the blood, the lifeblood of what we're doing right now, which is, which is public radio. Yes. Northwest public radio moxie. Yeah. <laughs> Even by public radio standards, low on the moxie. <laughs> The sarsaparilla of, uh, of yeah. show business. Yeah. When I was a kid, I had a paper route. I delivered this thing called the North Central Outlook in Seattle. It was a weekly paper. And what I learned after a few months of doing it was that nobody knew when the paper was supposed to be delivered and no one liked the newspaper because <laughs> it was a free weekly. It was called the North Central what, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The North Central... <laughs> Do we have to recycle that? Yeah. This is before liner. the days of recycling. But So what I started doing was throwing the entire bundle of papers I would get just into a like dumpster mm-hmm. and going about my summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then one day I was picking the paper up from the place where you get it, and another kid said, watch out today. They're doing some spot checks. They're actually going block by block to figure out if we're delivering the paper. And so I knew what the car was that the guy who was kind of the boss drove and I followed it on my Huffy. And when he'd stop on a block, I would race ahead of him and deliver the paper to that block. Wow. And none of the other blocks. And then just make sure that at least when he went and checked it out, there were papers. I don't know if that was Moxie. I don't think it's legal. How, how is it that you became a radio host and not a lawyer? Is my question. <laughs> that seems, like a, that seems like, a, like a lesson, an early lesson in lying and being unethical, right? <laughs> Have you had a moment, though, in your, in your musical career where you've needed to really just, like, that you can specifically think of where you've needed to, like, summon together your inner Mickey Rooney and just moxie it up? My first show business job when I was 16 years old up in Anchorage, Alaska, uh, there was a U- uh, this was a business model that was a short-lived business model in the 80s, a UHF 24-hour music television station in Anchorage, and uh, they tried to make a go of it, and it lasted a few years. And I wanted to be a VJ so badly that I rode my 10-speed down to the music television offices, and I sat in the lobby with my VHS tape that I had made of me saying, next up, the Fat Boys. <laughs> next up, Cindy Lauper. You know, it's just me sitting on my couch with a VHS camera. And I would go down there every day, and every day they would say, the program director is too busy. Sorry, you know, I'd wait until the till We should mention he had this beard at age nine. Yeah. So it was unsettling for a lot of the adults in Alaska. But, but I seriously went there until he finally came out with, with, like, frustration and peak and said, All right, kid, fine. 
you got the job. And the job was I was hosting the rap show <laughs> Sunday nights from midnight to 6 a.m. And that is what Moxie will get you. And that was my first show business job. That is John Roderick, ladies and gentlemen. He'll be here throughout the night. I will too. But we have some exciting musical guests coming your way. They are a duo. They met in the Pacific Northwest. They bonded over their love for dreamy, experimental indie rock and also tall pine trees. Their most recent album is called Planet Music. And a little-known fact about Josh and Mare is that you can also hear their music and their voices in the theme song for the BBC Kids Channel in Canada, making them the undisputed favorite band of Anglophile toddlers all over North America. You know them. They're the ones who call it the lift and say bloody hell for no reason. Please welcome Josh and Mare to Livewire. Chase the sky Over the hills With eyes I was yours One time Turned away To feel tremble And die As I watch Over shadowed scars I am still Alive In the wake of a stolen tide I am one of every part of life As the ghost that was left behind I am yours to find Josh and Mayor, and you are listening to Livewire Radio. And then the guy was like, hey, you were the one who brought the trombone. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> nice one, Dave. Oh, it was nuts. Good evening, ladies. Uh, are you ready to order? Oh, 
Yeah, um, I'll have the bacon cheeseburger with extra bacon and the steak fries. Oh, that sounds good. But, you know, I'm trying to eat a little healthier. So uh, can I have the same thing, but without the cheese and bacon? And do you have turkey burgers? Uh, we do. Okay, so you just want a turkey burger then. I assume no mayo? You assume correctly, sir. <laughs> Huh. Okay. Um, uh, sorry. Um, can I change my order? I mean, we do have that wedding in a couple weeks, so some of us should really cut back. <laughs> What's that supposed to mean? Nothing. Um, do you have, like, a garden burger thing I could do and substitute a salad for the fries? Okay. Sub garden burger, sub salad. What kind of cheese? No cheese! Very adamantly, no cheese. Okay. You know what? I I don't know what I was thinking. Um, can I just get a raw vegetable patty on a bed of kale? Gross. What? No, sorry, sure. Uh, yes, absolutely. You know what? I'll just have the kale. Oh, okay. How would you like that cooked? Just raw. Just a two-inch slab of raw kale. Sounds uh, fantastic. So we're doing this? I don't know what you're talking about. Fine, we're doing this. Uh, can I just get the water her kale was washed in? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry? Well, not the first water her kale was washed in, but the water from the second wash that just has the essence of kale, just like a quarter cup of kale rinse. That's what I'd like. I don't think we can do that. You, can you just take a ball jar and a palm frond and use the frond to waft some of the kale essence into the jar and close it up quickly and bring that to the table? Because I'll just have that. Uh, no, miss, no, I, I can't do that. Of course he can't. You're being ridiculous, Stacy. Look, can you just pick all the sesame seeds off of her hamburger bun and bring those out in a shot glass? Uh, no. no. Uh, can I get a mint toothpick, hold the mint? Uh, uh, I just want an empty bowl that once had food in it so I can remember past meals fondly. You know what? I'm fine with just the pictures of food on the menu. Oh, do, do you have, like, a tube that I can put down my esophagus to my stomach that will pump my breakfast out of my body? Do you guys have step aerobics classes in the restaurant? Oh, shut up. Fine, I'm going to find one. Uh, not before I find one. Well, I'm doing step aerobics right now. I'm doing parkour. I'm going to kiss this guy with the flu. I will be victorious. That's Laura Faye Smith, Sean McGrath, and Trisha Ferguson. You're listening to Livewire, the radio show that promises to never ever talk about post-gaming with a different frat in front of a Sigma new brother. <laughs> Literally never. Eight people got that joke, and you are my favorite eight people <laughs> in the entire planet. Coming up, poet Carrie Seitzinger, writer-director Kyle Patrick Alvarez, and more from Josh and Mare. We will be right back. <laughs>
All right, next up, the author of the recent book of poetry, Fall Ill Medicine, and I'm pretty confident the only person on today's show with 76 words of an Anne Sexton poem tattooed on her arm, which incidentally is like the poetic equivalent of a teardrop tattoo on her face, so do not mess with her. Please welcome Carrie Seitzinger to Livewire. Red House. The house is full of lovers who wake in pairs, arms and legs unfolding, Escher puzzles blurring the lines. From where God sits, they are framed in a garden of dandelions and tall grass. The morning opens their eyes like blue jays. The walls are thick with non-resistance. Voices carry like underwater whale calls as the pairs make love in turns. Each one of us holds a clock in our chest, encased in a city we've just fallen in home with. What I want from him are countless things. The laughter that explodes like a startled flock, that song to come through like the long-awaited overthrow of my jeans and heart. In the space of daybreak, I don't know, I don't know him yet. From where God sits, the death of one thing is also its rebirth. The stars can only give way to a grander one, an immense sun dawning over his shoulder, turning the house from shadow to red, like a beaten mouth in love, opening to say amen. Fluorescent. If somebody hits on you at the supermarket, you should feel great. Those are some very powerful lights in there. A pairing of opposites. Let's cradle each other like bats. Soft light draining through the cracks where our wings overlap. I want that black shelter. I want that shell back. I want you again in the time you started an argument that lasted for hours until you got horny off my rhetoric and told me I'm a genius and let's go to bed. I want you back in the rain in that orange scarf. You kissed me and touched my rib with your thumb. Come home to these walls painted in my veins and DNA. I want to take Polaroids of you, tap you over me, over me, like a fingertip on a wristwatch face, then push you off cold shoulder. You and I are mostly equal like medicine and poison. Carrie Seitzinger, ladies and gentlemen. We have something that needs settling right here, right now, okay? 
We've heard the smack you've been talking in various literary journals <laughs> about how your iambic pentameter cannot be touched, about how three people went to the hospital after they tried to poetry slam you at the Iowa Writers Workshop. <laughs> okay, we've heard that stuff. But you see, we have our own literary rough rider, our house poet, Mr. Scott Poole, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. And he, in the parlance of public radio, be on that next level, breaking people off with his haikus and spitting poems that sometimes don't even rhyme. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing that could happen either. Um, we are going to settle this beef, okay, this blood feud, uh, the only way we know how in public radio, with a simile off. We gave each of you three photographs to describe using similes. John Roderick and I will be the co-judges of this event uh, there is apparently a bottle of whiskey on the line for this simile off, too, I'm told. So it just got real. Okay. <laughs> All right, so these are the photos. We are going to uh, describe for you out there in Radioland the photos. You've probably seen them before. They're pretty famous. And then you guys are going to describe them uh, in terms of a simile. The first photo is the very famous Alfred Eisenstadt photo from VJ Day in 1945. This is that sailor dipping the nurse in Times Square as, uh, as people are celebrating, okay? Here is a fun fact about that photo. The kiss E in the picture is a woman named Edith Shane. She was a nurse at Doctor's Hospital. She says he walked out of the subway and was immediately grabbed and kissed by the sailor and thought to herself, I figured I might as well have let him kiss me since he, he fought for me in the war. So here we go. We're going to go, starting with Scott Poole, we're going to alternate between our poets. Scott Poole, the Alfred Eisenstadt photo from VJ Day, 1945. Simile it up. The sailor kisses a nurse on VJ Day in Times Square the way a man would gently kiss a five-foot-four sub sandwich after 63 days of only eating juice kale, pressing it lovely to his body while the excited sandwich dumps half of its contents on the floor. Strong. Strong. I'm going to uh, have to give that a nine. Roderick, what do you say? It was good, uh, but I, I'm, I'm not going to judge until I hear both contestants. Mm, okay, you do it your way, I'll do it mine. All right, you. <laughs> Carrie Seitzinger. Her hair is knotted ticker tape in a crowd of confetti. Her breath is a streamer of home. He kisses her like white-hot victory. Ooh. Luke, Luke, have you ever been kissed like White Hot Victory? No. I'm giving that a four because it didn't make sense to me based on my life experience. <laughs> so, right. that's, not, that's not your bad sightseer. That's really my sadness. Well, uh, speaking as a person who has made out both with a sandwich and with an unwilling nurse... I feel, like the, I feel like the second poem uh, was a more accurate reflection of, uh, of, of the experience. Okay, can you assign a numeric value to it, please? A numerical value? Any number that you've heard in um, your life. <laughs> uh, I will give the sandwich uh, poem a 43. Okay. And I will give the uh, White Hot Heat poem uh, a uh, 900. Okay. 
Okay, it was a, I'm sorry, it was a 900. 900. Okay, so right now it is 52 to 904. <laughs> Pool is down but not out, I would say, in this contest. All right, I second photo. This. Second photo, Carrie Seitzner is going to go first in this one. This is that famous uh, Peter Turnley picture of this man. He's straddling the Berlin Wall as it's going down in 1989. He's wearing jeans and a leather jacket. He's got his fists up in the air. He's screaming with these crowds in front of him. There are cranes behind him, okay? Not a lot of people know this wall was brought down by the band Scorpions when they did the song Winds of Change. That is a historical footnote I just made up, and that's okay because I'm the judge. Carrie Seitzinger, go. Like a charged fault line, fraught with freedom, and finally quaking, the people line up at Toys R Us for Tickle Me Elmo Christmas 1996. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving that one a five, but only because you're leading by 800 points. And I just feel like I don't want Poole to get dispirited. <laughs> Speaking of, Scott Poole. A man sits astride the Berlin Wall while a crowd cheers with their first feeling of freedom. Like the time you jumped onto my back and yelled, Giddy up, hog boy! <laughs> Leaving the bar and I veered quickly to the left and accidentally threw you into an unfortunately placed fetid swamp of cheering bullfrogs. Sorry. I have actually had that happen. So I'm giving that an 855. <laughs> Roderick? Uh, well, a uh, little known fact, I actually was in Berlin in 1989, uh, the day after the wall opened. I was a, uh, I was a teenage hitchhiker. And I, uh, I heard there was big doings in Berlin, and I got on a train and woke up the next morning, and the, the wall was open, and the streets were flooded with East Germans. Wearing Pe acid wash jeans. Yeah, people were spraying them with champagne. They looked terrified. <laughs> West Germans were grabbing them and shaking them and throwing money at them, and they had never seen anything like it. I had never seen anything like it. Uh, I would, uh, I'll give the uh, first poem a seven and the second poem an eight. Okay. The race is really tightening up, guys. We've got a 916 to a 917 going on right now. It's anybody's simile game. Third photo. This is the really what I think we'll look back on as one of the last truly important, just like worldwide news related photographs we have. It's a photo from last week of Justin Bieber getting out of his SUV. He's wearing a ski mask, right? a ski mask, but it is a Chanel ski mask, so it costs more than most of us make in a year. And then he has a fedora sort of jauntily atop it, as if he were a member of an Orthodox Jewish community. All of this apparently to lower his profile with the paparazzi. I, I've seen this photo, and it looks like the gimp from Pulp Fiction uh, stole Boy George's hat. We already told you, you're not eligible for the simile contest. <laughs> All right, we start with Scott Poole. Justin Bieber emerges from a limo wearing a Chanel ski mask and a fedora like an extremely loved Care Bear. 
if the symbol on his chest was Chanel instead of a smiley face cloud, and he was part of the Munich 72 terrorist squad instead of a baker of delicious cookies. Strong. Strong. Giving that a six. Carrie Sightsinger. Can, can I say something else about the photograph? Roderick, can we allow it? I'll allow it. Well, no, here, I'll just say, I'll, there was a person next to Bieber in the, in the picture who was just as much a part of the photograph, um, and mine discusses his attire as well. Like wrestlers costumed for combat, a lurid Lucha Libra mask versus a hooded drop crotch long sleeve singlet, the crowd goes wild. Anytime a drop crotch is referenced, I give it an automatic eight, like my father and his father before me, giving that one an eight. Roderick? Yeah, I feel like extra points for, for incorporating every element of that photograph. Uh, although I didn't really understand what Scott was talking about, so... Uh, uh, I give them both a seven. That's crazy, you guys. We have a tie. It's 931 to 931. Yeah! Meaning, you split the bottle of whiskey and the respect of your peers. Scott Poole and Carrie Seitzinger, ladies and gentlemen... That was Carrie Seitzinger and Scott Poole. Carrie's book is Fall Ill Medicine, and Scott's latest book is The Sliding Glass Door. You're listening to Live Wire Radio Variety for the Attention Span Challenged. If you prefer to take your radio in a podcast form, you can find ours on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and our website at livewireradio.org. You seemed very comfortable with the similes, John Roderick, of the long winters. I, as I said at the beginning of the show, I'm not uh, one who knows a lot about the talking yeah. and the grammar. Right. Do you think grammar actually matters? Do you think knowing about split infinitives and things like that is important, or is that just being a little bit, I don't know, fusty? No, I think it really matters. I, I, and I'm not just pandering to the yeah. 55-year-old uh, average age in the audience tonight. <laughs> Language evolves, and that is why it is my contention that the most perfect English is spoken in Anchorage, Alaska. Thank you, sir. Because, because English has continually evolved as it has marched around the world, and the last place it landed was Anchorage. It is the, it is the distillation of the form. See, I am a person who, when I know one thing about grammar or about the definition of a word, I never let anyone forget it. Like, for instance, peruse. People think that means to just kind of breeze through something. It means to read carefully. And I remind people of that every mm. single time they use the word peruse because it's like my one little thing I know, right? I like that. But as far as grammar goes, kind of uh, in a larger sense, I know that when you talk to people who are grammar experts, what they say is as long as the people who you're talking to understand what you're saying, then language is doing the thing it's supposed to do, which is to inform us and to communicate ideas. And so supposedly can be a word <laughs> if... 
the person you're talking to knows you mean supposedly. I'm, look, no. I'm just the messenger, you no, guys. you know what? Supposedly, you were supposed to be a cool no. audience. No. <laughs> that is garbage thinking. <laughs> you, may, you may have read this recently, but the, uh, the Oxford English Dictionary now allows the use of the word literally to mean figuratively. This is true. That it, is literally the worst news I've ever gotten. Literally, my head exploded when I heard <laughs> that you can use the word literally now to mean whatever you want. You can just say literally and then any words because literally has been deprived of its meaning through being used incorrectly so many times. It's like the word penultimate. Whenever I hear the word penultimate, normally in the, on the street. Yes, sure. <laughs> the kids on the corner. When, when I'm, yo, when, yo, 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 you got that penultimate sack of my weed? Exactly. <laughs> people, people use that word as though it means extra ultimate. Right. When in fact it means next to last. I'm mad. Well, that was the penultimate comment during this segment, which we are literally at the end of. Thank you very much, John Roderick. More Livewire Radio coming your way with Faces for Radio Theater. The following is a paid promotional announcement for Rick Darvis's Profit Forever real estate system. And now, the man you've all been waiting for, the real estate king of kings, Rick Darvos. Hey, you guys. Hey, you're amazing. Every single one of you is a star. (laughs) See? You know it. You know it. And you do, too. Okay, hey. I know we're all struggling to make it these days, but have I got a real estate system for you. We've spent years developing the Rick Darvos Profit Forever system, and whether it's a refi, a flip, or a new development, we can get you in with no money down. And the best part is, it's not a cult. Can we get you 0% financing? Yes. Can we get you in on commercial properties for half their value? Yes. Is this a religious sect with arcane rules and an unimpeachable, all-powerful ruler? Sure it is. Do we have provisions for mass suicide? Of course. Is this a cult? (laughs) I don't think so. Do we teach you to buy and sell foreclosed properties for a 690% profit? Yes. Do we make you shave your head and leave just one small braid in the back? Yes! Can you leave the compound during daylight hours? No. But this system works. You will make money. You will finally be able to afford those Armani suits that the rap singers are wearing these days. And you will meet our alien leader at his headquarters after the elders of Shaguffin marked the start of the pangalactic Fargolian Namu. Now let's make some money, people! For information on the Rick Darvo's Profit Forever system, call 1-800-NOT-A-CULT or visit us at ridethelightintoheaven.org. That was Andrew Harris, Trisha Ferguson, and Laura Faye Smith. Our next guest is a screenwriter and director with a penchant for telling 
True Life Tales. In 2009, he adapted an autobiographical GQ article written by Found Magazine's Davy Rothbart into a film called Easier with Practice. It's a film about a shy writer with an outsized phone sex habit. A couple of years ago, he decided he wanted to do the same sort of thing with a story from David Sedaris' book, Naked. But David Sedaris has famously said no to all requests for adapting his stories for the screen. Somehow, though, Kyle Patrick Alvarez prevailed. The result is a film called COG, which premiered this year at the Sundance Film Festival. Please welcome Kyle Patrick Alvarez to Livewire. Kyle Patrick Alvarez, welcome to Livewire. Hello, thank you. <laughs> I'm a little, it's a little strange to be backstage and then seeing that there's so yeah, many there people, are people here. here. I create an illusion, like a veil for myself, like a, you know, a safety blanket that's just been torn out of my hands. <laughs> well, in talking to me before the show, you assume there's no way that guy's actually hosting a real program I really, with real I really, audience. I thought this was just like a mirror right yeah, here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like king of comedy. Exactly. Downstairs with a set that I've built. <laughs> Mom, I'm doing my show! <laughs> So we've already mentioned it a few times tonight in setting this up, but I mean, it is a sort of amazing story of how you actually got David Sedaris to okay this because it's not a thing he usually goes in for. How did you pull it off? Well, you know, I, like you said, I, I finished my first film and I'd read this particular story of his when I was probably 14 or 15 and it always stuck with me and I kind of, it was one of those things that when you always, you're talking with your friends, you're like, you know, that story would always make such a good movie, but it's always sort of like a fantasy and, and I was on the set of my first film and partly because my first movie was based on another, another This American Life contributor, it kind of started coming back into my head and I couldn't shake it and I was like, I really should try to do this. Um, of course, that was immediately met with, like, everyone's going to say no, you're wasting your time, this is impossible, it's sort of a pipe dream, and, and I didn't really, I was going to be stubborn, you know, and so for me it was, okay, well, I'll, I'll accept no for an answer. You Were know? his handlers <laughs> telling you no, essentially, and the people yeah. from his, like, you know, publishing company or whatever Yeah, I mean, the first step I did was, like, call up his agent and, you know, talk to them, and they're kind of like, we get this call all the time, we appreciate it, but it's essentially like a policy at this point. You know, that he doesn't say yes to film projects, and that's kind of what it is, but thank you so much. And, and finally, he was going to be in L.A., so I was just like, okay, I kind of just need to own up to this and go to a reading of his, and I'm not one of those people that would ever, like, walk into, you know, like, stop someone on the street and, like, beg them for something or, like, run into someone famous that I'd be nervous to meet and try to introduce myself. So I, I went up to him, and I gave him a copy of my first film, and I had the added benefit of, hey, it was based on... Davy Rothbard, who he was familiar with, so that helped a little bit, but I just gave him the film, and I, was just, I just said, look, there's things I would like to talk to you about. And walking away from that, what was your level of hope that he would ever see that movie? <laughs> I mean, I didn't think, I figured it would just go, it was for myself. You know, I've, I've learned that I, I did that for myself. I did that so I could have the peace of mind of, okay, I didn't just hang up the phone after an agent said no, or after a producer said it would be never happen or be too expensive. You know, I kind of went to the furthest degree before... Uh, my ambition sort of made a fool of myself. I think I got just to that point. I don't think I embarrassed myself. But I got really close. And, um, and fortunately, he, months later, picked up, you know, picked up the DVD and watched it once he was back home. I'm amazed he took it back to France with him. And I don't want you to take <laughs> no, any offense was... to that. But just like with the rules about carry-ons yeah, I... and just like the logistics of traveling a DVD across like the Atlantic Ocean... <laughs> 
I never expected it. Um, at that point, once I gave him the film, I kind of erased it from my memory in a lot of ways. And he uh, and I got an email from him. It was a few days before Christmas, and it was before I was going to my family. I was alone. It was really late at night. It was like 3 a.m. or something. And I got an email, and it said, you know, from David Sedaris, and the subject just said, uh, "You're excellent movie." And I kind of read this email from him saying that he'd heard that I was interested in COG, the story of his, and that. He really liked the film and he was tempted to say yes, but wanted to hear why I wanted this story. And so I kind of, I thought it was a f joke. You know, I thought it was a prank. And it was one of those weird things. You hear those stories where like people hang up the phone right. when someone calls them and you're like, this is a lie. You know, it was, it it was, was like David Snares 43 at hotmail.com. Basically, it basically was. Initially was. suspicious. It, it wasn't really anything like deceptive or the email address literally was just, you know, that's the funny thing. Anyone of any certain level of notoriety I've ever known, which isn't many people, all their email addresses are their names at gmail.com. So if there's anyone Don't you Don't abuse that knowledge, <laughs> radio listeners of America. You're listening to Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. We're talking to Kyle Patrick Alvarez about his new movie, COG. You were talking about the budget for this film, and I, I thought it was interesting because I, I just watched the film, and it fell right in this bandwidth uh, for me that was... A film that's made clearly by somebody who knows very much what they're doing. It has great actors in it. It's, it's well shot. It's well constructed. And yet it could have been the kind of thing that you might have tried to raise money for through like Kickstarter or one of these crowdsourcing <laughs> things, which has been going on a lot lately. The Veronica Mars movie. Uh, Zach Braff is raising money to make uh, Garden State 2. Um, <laughs> this is happening now. And it yet yeah. <laughs> it's sort of uh, it's, it's controversial because the question is, should established filmmakers, people with access, be turning to the masses and saying, can you please help support these projects? I deliberately didn't, for a few reasons. I mean, first of all, my first film didn't get me the level of exposure Garden State, you know, got Zach Braff, nevertheless, that he got as an actor. You know, the film did well, and it won some awards and got a release, but nothing on that scale. But, you know, for me, it was... I. I it took three years to finance this film, and we had to keep on cutting the budget. At no point did I sort of feel like, well, I, I want to create a platform for, like, my... Fr I feel like the people who, would, who weren't just, like, my friends and family that would be giving me money, who I don't really want to have to ask for money, but I feel like it would have been fans of David's, and while I hope that they're happy with the film, there would have been a certain amount of misleading nature of, like, invest in David Sedaris's movie, and it isn't. It's, it's my movie. That's why he wanted it to exist. You know, it's... He didn't write it, you know, he didn't, he didn't direct it or produce it or he didn't, you know, he wasn't on set and he's been really supportive of the film and he was there for the premiere, but it felt, so there felt something disingenuous about, about doing a campaign. I think Kickstarter can be an incredible thing, an incredible thing for artists, but I think there's a slippery slope that some of the more established people aren't considering. I think it's a project, like Veronica Mars, they were trying to make that movie for a long time. Warner Brothers owns it and they're like, we're not going to finance it. Who's going to want to pay to watch this? And his response, Rob Thomas, who created the show, he was like, well, let me show you what they'll be out there. You know, Zach Braff and his thing, I watched it, and it was, it's sort of like, well, I could have gotten this money, but I thought, I'll go to the fans instead, and then I can keep creative control. Like, I certainly know about creative control. It's what took the movie so long to finance was, I refused to be told who would be cast in it. That's what I was fighting for. My feeling on it is, I think he has every right to go to Kickstarter and to his fans. I think... Everyone else has every right to criticize him for it, too. I mean, I think that that's the only thing I can kind of... Because I, I think there's a certain matter of it. It's like, A, you have that wealth yourself. So if you really believe in it so much, won't you put it in your... You know, if I had the money to finance my own film, I, I would have. I would have done it, and I would have made the film two and a half years ago. But that's not Kickstarter in large. I think, I think it should exist, but I think you have... It starts to create it really fragile when it becomes its own economy and not for independent artists. Um, it, you know, not for people struggling. That's sort of the platform it's 
feels like it was built for. And it sort of feels like a slight bastardization of it to sort of say, oh, well, we've got this, and this, one is, this is what it's going to be, and it's going to be millions of dollars, and it's going to be like we're going to have some free economy of film financing, which might lead to great movies, but probably will lead to a lot of conflict and disappointed fans, I think. Hmm. We're talking to Kyle Patrick Alvarez. His new movie is COG. Um, one of the themes it would seem in the movie, and of course I guess it's set forward by David Sedaris's essay, right, is the character, David, is a, is a kid who, uh, you know, young man who went to Yale and then decides to go out to the Northwest to pick apples to kind of see how the, how the rest of the world lives, and he's pretty smug, and he thinks he knows a lot, but it seems to me that one of the takeaways is people who got good educations and think they know a lot don't really know a lot. Do you, do you buy that as an idea? Not necessarily. I mean, for me, it I turns th- out they're the ones that put that thing on Mars that's taking all the pictures. <laughs> it's people who went to good colleges and think they know a lot. Well, I mean, I think it's, it, it, you know, for me, it was the idea. You know, what's interesting is what the hard part of adapting his work into a movie was he's always writing by looking back. You know, he's, he's voicing of this happened to me and this is why it was interesting. To ch- take the film and to not put voiceover into it and to not have it be a looking back story, which I felt was important for the movie to not be. I felt it needed to be sort of present. Um, You take that self-knowing away from the character, and when you strip that away from David's persona, you kind of have this guy that's really into himself and thinks really highly of himself. You know, and and, and that's not who David is, actually, but he, you know, it's sort of how he... And I thought, well, that will make for an interesting character. Or not necessarily an interesting even David Sedaris character, just an interesting character. This guy, coming. We sh- the movie takes place in, Port- in Oregon. We yes. shot it in Oregon. Well, and <laughs> there is and a, uh, I don't want to give anything away, but let's just say Jade Clocks carved in the shape of the state of Oregon play a huge part in this film. So <laughs> we, you yeah, should really check it out. If for no other reason than the Jade Clock Factor. Yeah, it does actively take place in this state. And for a while, uh, quick aside, you know, of the years and almost financing that happened for the film. At one point, we were going to have to shoot it in Ohio. And we're going to have to shoot Ohio for Oregon, which even thinking about it was, I, I, should, I should have just said no. And um, <laughs> uh, ex- <laughs> ex- it has nothing to do, I have nothing Wait, to do. Wait, I don't know. Are you angry Ohioans or Oregonians? <laughs> you're just angry. I have nothing against Ohio. You're from, you're from Phoenix. That's the most upsetting part. <laughs> and... <laughs> and and was one of those and I remember telling David I was like I think it's going to happen and I'd said that so many times to him it's going to be in Oregon and then things quickly shifted we lost some actors different money came in we were able to then take it actually to where it takes place and David wrote me back the most like simple and obvious and insightful email he said I'm so relieved cuz Oregon makes such a, I mean Oregon makes such a better Oregon than Ohio does you know and it was <laughs> It was one of those things, like, I felt kind of like a fool. Like, why did... I was so eager to make it that, you know... But, but you know, back, back to sort of... So his character, you know, it was... You know, it's, it was about taking a guy that had room to grow. And that's what I was interested in. And so it's, you know, when the film starts, it's, he's a little off-putting, and it was hard to find the right actor that can make that watchable still, when you have someone that's unlikable. Um, but I thought it would be interesting to see that arrogance and that front be stripped away from him and learn that self-knowing quality that makes David so relatable and so humorous and funny and have that, the film be the process of him sort of gaining that ability. You know, in some, in some ways it would be like that, the, the first seeds of who he could become as a writer. Well, I think you really effectively create that arc in the film, and I would highly recommend people see it if it comes to a town near them or if it's available through whatever distribution model. September. This September, it'll be in, in theaters and, uh, and through uh, video on demand. 
Well, there you go. The movie is called COG, written by David Sedaris, and then made into a film by Kyle Patrick Alvarez. Thank you so much for being on Livewire. That was Kyle Patrick Alvarez, and you are listening to Livewire Radio, brought to you in part by Whole Foods Markets, reminding you guys that Mother's Day is coming up in May, and even if you have two moms or no moms or just a VHS copy of Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, (laughs) at least one person out there had to put up with you, and let's be honest, you can be difficult from time to time. Whole Foods Markets has healthy organic ingredients like locally sourced produce and hormone-free beef so that you can cook a meal for whoever's been putting up with you all this time. More information can be found at WholeFoodsMarket.com. We'll be back in just a moment. Now we return to David Sedaris, hostage negotiator. They've got 35 bank employees in there, and if we don't bring them a plane in three minutes, they're gonna start roughing up the hostages. Oh dear. Damn it! Sedaris, it looks like you're our only hope at this point. Let's call them. All right. How does this phone? I'm not sure how to really. Do I need to dial nine to get out? We've got a direct line to the bank. Just start talking. Oh, technology. I found that my relationship to technology is similar to that of a newborn child's relationship to a fine... Oh, oh, hello. Is this one of the masked fellows? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We want that plane now, okay? These people have families, okay? If we don't see that plane in an hour, they're going to be in a world of hurt, okay? There's children here and mothers and fathers. I remember my father saving sandwiches. He'd let them sit for days on the TV tray next to his Barker lounger. Wrapped in wax paper, I would watch as they grew beards of mold like a square Grizzly Adams made of bologna and cheese. All right, listen, I'm not really following you here. My sister Amy used to follow me to school, dressed as a lumberjack or a cafeteria lady or a very short white Harlem Globetrotter. And we would stop on the way for pixie sticks, the cocaine of childhood. (laughs) You know, yeah, it was a little like cocaine. In the afternoons, we'd return home to our mother, the house smelling of canned green beans and a pot roast that was tragically aware of its own mediocrity. (laughs) 
Oh, God. You're so quirky and relatable. Fine. Okay, we'll come out. But, but hey, listen, I got a copy of Barrel Fever in the getaway car. My mom's a huge fan. Can I get you to sign it? Well, of course. It's always nice to meet a fan. You got another one, Sedaris. You've got a knack for this job. It appears so, Sergeant. Do you validate parking? That's Sean McGrath, Andrew Harris, and Trisha Ferguson. All right, now it's time for some questions and answers from our audience. Science, pop culture, relationship advice. You have questions. We have, um, legally, we're still allowed to call them answers. Our live audience has written their queries and sent them to the stage. They will now be answered enthusiastically, but in a non-legally binding way, in a segment we like to call Dear Livewire. And our first answerer is the recent uh, co-champion, we're going to call it, of our simile off. It's poet Carrie Seitzinger. Stephen asks, how would you like to die? P.S. This is not a threat. (laughs) Well, Stephen, I, of course, would like to die as a very old person in my bed asleep. And another way to die, uh, another painless way, is by way of guillotine. Fast, (laughs) chop the head off. Thank you. So an old person in her bed, guillotined. Carrie Seitzinger. Next we have the man behind the long winters on the line with John Roderick. Mr. John Roderick. Thank you. Try to keep it under 12 minutes. Duncan Parks asks... What does quantum entanglement mean for me? Well, Duncan, for the purposes of this question, I'm going to assume that you are a photon. And that at some point in time, you have been close to another photon. And now that photon has been separated from you. And you are worried, is that photon turning counterclockwise when I turn counterclockwise? The answer is yes. That photon has become quantumly entangled to you. And you two will forever move as one. Beautiful stuff from John Roderick. Tonight's Dear Livewire was brought to you by New Belgium Brewing, who present Beer School. Today's subject, dandelion greens. Don't look disparagingly at those dandelions, you guys. You can actually use their leaves to create a salad high in calcium, iron, and antioxidants. Or you can do what New Belgium did, which is way better, let's be honest. Put them in a beer. It's Pardablom, New Belgium's limited series with ingredients like peach juice and the grains of paradise, including dandelions. Not just weeds anymore. Weeds that can help make you not feel your feelings for just a few minutes. (laughs) Information available at New Belgium Brewing. Dot com. Thank you. I'm doing it right now. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Josh and Mare.
and Mayor here on Livewire. And that's our show. Thank you so much. Thanks to our guests, Carrie Seitzinger, Kyle Patrick Alvarez, and Josh and Mayor. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Ben Landsverk. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art. The Oregon Cultural Trust and listeners like you find fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are Sean McGrath, Trisha Ferguson, Andrew Harris, and Laura Faye Smith. Our head writer is Courtney Hommeister. Show writers are Sean McGrath, Jason Rouse, and Scott Poole. Sound effects and direction by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom. Our house sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Mark Bauk. 
Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Vondrelli. Livewire is created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and on Facebook at Livewire Radio. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.